Jesus Christ? Lord, would you unite our thoughts so that we can focus and not be distracted on lesser things? Lord, would you satisfy us from your word? We pray. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, so good to see you all here this morning. I want to invite you to join me uh, in 1 Samuel 26. Actually, we've got a lot of real estate to cover this morning. We'll do all of 26, all of 27 in the first couple verses of chapter 28. So lots to cover, uh, but, but as we come to God's Word, really by way of introduction, let me just start by saying this, that, that I think the appropriate way as we come at this is that we need to understand or heed and hear the warning that God has for us this morning. That God's Word, and the warning is this, is that we're going to see in these two accounts a sharp contrast that is presented. Uh, and so on one side, we'll see faith being demonstrated. On the other side, we're going to see fear being demonstrated. But the warning is that God's Word is going to confront a variety of items and things in our lives. And so, loved ones, there's going to be things that are going to be hard for us to hear. But when we open up God's Word, we don't open God's Word so that we can give it our seal of approval. We open God's Word because God is authoritative over us, and God gets to tell us whatever He wants and whatever He thinks is best. And so as we come to the text this morning, here's my encouragement, loved ones. Will you let God's Word say what it wants to say unreservedly? Will you simply embrace what it is that God has for us, that we're not trying to qualify it, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to uh, minimize it, no, no matter how demanding, uh, how confronting it is, that we would hear what God has for us and respond accordingly. Because what God's Word is going to lead us to this morning is this idea right here, that faith enables a confident trust in God, where fear is the absence of trust in God. Let me say that again. Faith enables a confident trust in God, where fear is the absence of trust in God. And so let, let's just bottom line it, cut it straight right here uh, before we go any further. The reality is, is that some of us, maybe many of us, are living in some level of unrighteous fear. And God's Word is going to speak into that and confront that this morning. And so we want to let His Word pierce where it needs to pierce, to rebuke where it needs to rebuke, to exhort where it needs to exhort, to encourage where it needs to encourage. Whatever it is that God wants, that's what we want uh, to, to, to submit ourselves to and to come under uh, this morning. So before we go any further, we're going to pray. Uh, we're going to specifically ask that we would hear what it is that God wants to communicate to us uh, by and through His Word, and then we'll begin to walk through uh, this text. Why don't you join me? Let's pray. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for the ways that Your Word uh, cuts through and, and deals with and exposes and reveals the, the different items in our lives God, we pray that as we come to a text that in some ways will be great, in other ways it'll be uh, really just blunt and in our face. God, that we would receive what you're uh, wanting to give to us. God, not in parts, not, not, not the parts that we like or prefer, but God, the totality of what you have for us. God, would you help us to receive it, to embrace it, to trust it, to follow and obey you in all things. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for City Prez and for Justin Edgar and for that body of believers. God, praying that you'd be doing your good work in them in the same way that we desire. You'd be doing your good work in us as well. And so, Father, we do thank you. God, we pray that you'd have your way with us and that we would submit and follow and obey all that you have for us here in your word. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, 
Amen. All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is Faith and Fear. Faith and Fear. And really, in these two chapters, you see two accounts uh, that, that there's this stark contrast uh, between uh, David, who is, who's going to demonstrate a level of faith in chapter 26, um, and then he's going to live in fear in chapter 27. And so that's how we'll move through our time together. Just two points. Uh, looking at, first of all, in chapter 26, let's begin with this idea right here, that faith enables us to trust in God. Faith <clears throat> enables us to trust in God. It's so simple, and yet it's so significant. And here's what's going on, is that Saul has resumed his pursuit of David, uh, and we'll read about that here in just a moment. Uh, and so as we're thinking about how faith is enabling a trust in God, we're going to see a few different things with that. But the first thing that we see in these first 16 verses is that we trust where God has us. Loved ones, we're to trust where God has us. And this actually plays out in a variety of different ways in the first 16 verses. So let's just get into it. I'm going to read the first nine verses, but, but one of the ways that we trust where God has us is that we trust God's positioning of our lives. The specific position that God has put us into, that we want to trust that. Uh, I'm going to begin, I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel 26. This is God's word to us. It says this, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakaliah, which is in the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And so once again, the Ziphites have betrayed uh, David. Once again, Saul is on a pursuit of David. 3,000 men, once again, very similar to what we saw in chapter 24. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 3. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakaliah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul had come, came after him into the wilderness. David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay where, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So David goes down. He's kind of spying out what's around him. He sees Saul. He sees Abner. He sees all the men. And he's like, okay, I've got an idea of what's going on. So I, I don't know if this would be my response, but this is what David does. Look at verse 6. So he comes back. David said to Ahimelech, Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me to the camp of Saul? It's like, hey, I saw there's 3,000 guys. Who's coming with me? And Abishai said, well, I'll go with you. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night and see them sneaking down under the cover of night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. As we've seen throughout this book, his spear right next to him, it says with his spear struck in the ground, stuck in the ground at his head, He's kind of surprised he's not cuddling with it as much as he loves that thing. Uh, but it's still near him, right? Abner and the army lay around him. So you kind of have this, this image where they're kind of stepping over, guys, right? And they get up to Saul. And look at what Abishai says in verse 8. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. He's like, this is it. And it's just like chapter 24. All like, this is it. And then I love this line, right? Trying to persuade David to let him do something. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. Just like one time, man. I won't do it more than once. Just one, whack, and then we're out of here. Just one. And David's like, no, 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 no. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, what David is, is, is demonstrating for us, what he's uh, demo or showing and, and, and realizing here in this moment is that, that he understands God has positioned Saul in that place. 
in the same way that God positioned David in the wilderness. He's trusting the ways that God has positioned all parties involved in this. And it seems, right, like as we're reading through, you're like, okay, here, he's getting handed over. This is where Saul's finally going to be handed over to David. But what David appeals to in verse 9, he's like, no, 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 you, you can't put your hand out against the Lord's anointed. That's going to go very poorly. Like God put him there. David recognizes God put Saul in this position, and God put me in, in the position that I'm in, and he realizes God has put us in both of these positions. And so we're going to trust God's positioning in our life. And loved ones, the same is true for all of us. God has put you in the position that you find yourself in right now on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't random circumstances. It was an intentional move on God's part. So the questions that we have to be asking ourselves is this, can I trust God's positioning in my life? Can I trust where God has me? Uh, and, and you might go, well, Mike, if the truth be told, man, the position I find, it's just not, it's not that great. It's not ideal. And David's going, yeah, I know what that's like. I'm being hunted by my life, and I'm living in the wilderness. I know what it's like to not be in an ideal position, but it's the position God has put me in. And so I'm going to trust where God has me. Loved one, will you trust where God has you? And one other note with respect to this, David won't always be in the wilderness, and you won't always be in the position that you're currently in. Right? It's not forever. It's just this particular season, and that's true for all of us. God, God has us in a place, in a position for a purpose. Let's trust his positioning of and on and over our lives. And so part of trusting where God has us is we trust God's positioning of our lives. But notice what David says in verses 10 through 12. It's not just that we trust where God has positioned us. We also trust God's plan for our lives. David's response to Abishai is, is really, really uh, intriguing. He says this. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. David's saying, God has a plan that's going to that's gonna culminate in Saul's end, but it's not for me to run ahead and to accomplish it. God has a plan, and God's plan for Saul is also tied to God's plan for me. That's part of what's going on with David. And so he concludes, he says, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But then he encourages Abishai, he says, Take the spear and the jar of water and let's go. And they sneak out, and you might say, How in the world do you sneak through 3,000 guys and no one wakes up? Well, look at the end of verse 12. We're told the deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Right? That, that, that's, that's why. It wasn't because they're super stealthy and sneaky. It's because the Lord had put them to sleep, right? And the, and the Lord had allowed them to go into that place. But let's just talk about this idea of trusting God's plan for our lives for a moment. Because David is saying, listen, he, God's going to eliminate him in some way, shape, or form. What, 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 whether he dies in battle, whether he just dies naturally, or God strikes him down some other way. But part of what David's getting at here is th there's an implication for me as well. Right, the interrelation of Saul and David, that God not only has a plan for Saul, but God also has a plan for David, in the same way that God has a plan for all of us. All of our lives, God has a plan that he's accomplishing. But here's what we have to understand. That God has a variety of options. God has a variety of pathways to accomplish his purposes. And it's not for us to try to force God's hand, to try to coerce God, to try to speed God up, or to try to slow him down. Right? And, and, and David is just willing to patiently wait for God's plan to unfold. And I wonder whether or not you and I are willing to patiently wait for God's plan to unfold. And how many times, and in how many ways, 
And how often have we sinned because we want to speed God up or we want to try to coerce God or we try to want to manipulate God's plan or God's timing. And yet, we can't force God's providence and we can't coerce him into his plan. The reality is that God has a plan. God's plan is a good plan and God is working his plan. That's what God is doing. And what confidence, what confidence would you and I have if we really believe that in totality? That God has a plan, God's plan is a good plan, that God's working his plan. How does that begin to change our lives? How does it begin to change how we operate? How does it begin to change how we think? How does it begin to change how we live? Well, here's a few ways that it begins to change some of those things. Think about how you make decisions. Right? Decisions don't become, I have to get it right. Decisions become, Lord, where are you leading me? What are you directing me in? What would you have for us? Right? We're, we're going to the Lord looking for him to direct us and to lead us and to guide us, not, not trying to get it right. You think about some of the anxiety and some of the fear and some of the concern that can be so, so, so paralyzing and crippling at times. And what would happen there if we trusted God's plan? Loved ones, it would disappear. That's what would happen. See, all that stuff would disappear. You remember what Moses, do you know, do you know Moses wrote a psalm? Right, psalm 90 was written by Moses. And here's what Moses says towards the end of that psalm. He says this. He says, let your work be shown to your servants. And here's what Mo Moses is implying in that. Here's what he's getting that. He's saying, I'm going to do the work that God has for me to do, and I'm not going to worry at all about the work that God doesn't have for me to do. It's not my prerogative. It's not my problem. It's not something that I have to worry about. That, that, that's someone else's issue. I'm just going to worry about the things that God has for me and do those things. And yet how often that we end up worrying about things that God has for someone else? What a waste of time and energy. Why would we do that? I don't totally know, but we do. And so we want to trust, we want to trust God's plan for our lives. Okay, so what, what, what does that look like? Like on a Tuesday afternoon or on a Thursday morning, what does it look like to trust God's plan for my life? Here's three. This is far from exhaustive, but I think three things uh, coming out of what we're seeing with David, and, and I'm drawing a little bit from Moses and Psalm 90 as well here, but what does it look like to trust God's plan for our lives? Let me give us three things that I think are helpful. First of all, that we pray looking for God's leading. That when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're, we're desirous that God would lead us, that God would direct us, and I'm not trying to manipulate God into approving my plan, which is often what we do in, in our prayer life, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? Like we go to the Lord, we're like, okay, God, here's what I need you to do, and here's how I'd like you to do it. Or you could do it this way, or you could do it this way, but we just, here's kind of the way that we want you to do it. Or here's what I was thinking would be ideal. See, all that gets scrubbed away, and it's like, Lord, you're in charge, so I'm just looking for you to direct and lead. And so we pray looking for God to lead us. Secondly, that we would embrace what God entrusts to us. This is drawn right out of what Moses says in, in Psalm 90. Right? Do the work that God has for you. Don't worry about the work that God doesn't have for you. And the freedom for us in this is that, that I worry about the stuff that God brings into my life. I'm not concerned about the things that God doesn't bring into my life. That's not what he has for me. It's not what he wants for me. So, so I'm not concerned with it. Maybe later that'll be a thing, but right now it's not a thing, so I don't have to worry about it. And loved ones, this plays out. This plays out in every facet of our life. It plays out for us professionally. It plays out for us uh, relationally. It plays out situationally. It plays out with ministries uh, or giftedness or things of that nature. 
In fact, just consider some of the different ways that this plays out. So think, first of all, professionally. I'm going to do the things that God has for me. I'm not going to worry about the things that God doesn't have for me. Now, that plays out both broad stroke in terms of what you actually do professionally, and then it plays out specifically within the context of, of, of what you're doing in that job. Just use myself for a moment, right? My job is a pastor. Anyone else end up in a career field you didn't think you were going into? Anybody else? Like five of you? You guys are liars. You did not have it all figured out when you were 18 years old. I can just tell you, I, I had lots of thoughts of what I was going to do in my life. This wasn't one of them. And so I can remember distinctly, I was probably 25 years old, I was talking to my father-in-law, and he was the first one to say, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be, this is what you're doing, you're going to be a lead pastor. And here was my response in that moment. I laughed at him, and then I said, you are crazy. Now he just laughs at me, and he already knows that I'm crazy, right? So joke's on me. But, but, but the point being, this is my job. So you know what I don't worry about? I don't worry about being a doctor. I don't worry about being an engineer. I don't worry about being a musician. I go on and on. I don't worry about any of that stuff. And I don't worry about the specifics of those jobs. You know why? That's not the work that God has for me. In the same way, you don't have to worry about some of the things that I have to worry about. Right? So, so there's, there's freedom in this. I'm just going to embrace what God chooses to entrust. Or you think about relationally. You think about some of the relational elements that God has for us. Some of you young people right now, you're not a husband or a wife. You will be one day, but you're not right now. You don't have to worry about that. Right? You're, you're, not, you're not a mom or a dad right now, so you don't, you don't have to worry about that. I'm not a grandpa right now, so I don't have to worry about that. I will never be a mother, so I don't ever have to worry about that. Now, Becky's out of town this weekend. Davis is probably worrying a little bit about that because being home alone with dad just doesn't quite play the same. Um, but but wait, we, we just embrace what God chooses to entrust to us situationally. You think about the different seasons of our life and praise God. Right? Praise God that our life is comprised of seasons. So when, when, when you're in a particularly rough season, you just thank God. You can say, hey, you know what? It's just a season. And when you're in a good season, you thank God that he's kind enough to give you a good or profitable uh, season. Right? But we just embrace what God chooses to entrust. Or you think about giftedness. It's like right now, right now, I think I'm getting to do what God has, has put into me spiritually to help build up the body of Christ. And I'm thankful for that. But there's plenty of things I'm terrible at. I'm, I'm not, I don't have the gift of mercy. I don't have the gift of service. No one has ever accused me of being compassionate. Like those are things that just aren't true of me. But do you know what happens when my head hits the pillow at night? I lose no sleep that no one thinks I'm compassionate. You know why? Because I'm not. Like I know that. And that's not what God put into me. So I don't have to worry about that. In the same way, you don't lose sleep over some sermon that you're never going to have to preach. You might lose sleep over some of my sermons, but you're not losing sleep over any sermon that you're not preaching. Right? But all of these things that we choose to embrace, what God chooses to entrust. It's part of what it is to trust God's plan for our lives. Or thirdly, this. I mean, this one seems so simple. But sometimes we just get sideways on this, that we accept what God provides. It's part of trusting God's plan. Sometimes that means that God, that God gives us more than we were hoping for. Sometimes it means that God gives us less than we were hoping uh, for. Uh, but but if you, have you ever needed some kind of provision uh, and it didn't come in the way that you thought that it would? You know what I'm talking about, right? Whether it's the source of the provision or the means of the provision. Maybe it was more, maybe it was less, maybe it was just totally different, whatever it was. And I say this because sometimes we get in our mind that God has to provide a certain way. And then God does something totally different, and we miss what God is doing in that moment. 
because it's like, well, it has to be this way. And for David, the provision in this moment wasn't that Saul was going to be killed. The provision was that God was giving him another example of how he's going to sustain him, how he's going to provide for him, how God is protecting him, and how God is ultimately going to take him to the throne. Right? We want to trust God's plan for our lives. And then thirdly, we think about trusting where God has us. We want to trust um, God's platform in our lives. Let's look at verse 13 through 16. Here's what it says. Right? They take the, the, the spear, they take the jar of water. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with the great space between them. And David began to call out to the army, right? He's calling out to Abner. And you can kind of see Abner kind of waking up, rubbing his eyes, like, who's, who's calling my name? What's going on here? And David says, will you not answer, Abner? And Abner's just confused at the end of verse 14. He's like, who are you? Who calls to the king? And David responds in verse 15 by saying, are you not a man who's like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the, the king, your lord. And so at this moment, Abner's probably kind of perking up. I don't know if you've ever woken up and you're late uh, for a presentation or you overslept and you had a test and you're like, oh, wait, oh, what's going on? There's probably a little bit of that fear and panic starting to well up in him. Like, what do you mean someone tried to destroy the king? He's probably looking around like, hey, where's Saul? But it gets worse because in verse 16, David says this, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And here's the evidence that David presents. He says, and now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And you can almost see David just hold him. Hey, this looks familiar. That stuff that was right next to you and him when you guys went to bed, why am I holding it on the other side of the hill? And the fear and the panic that has to be welling up inside of him in this moment. You say, okay, well, what, what does that have to do with platform? Because David in this moment David in this moment is speaking from a platform of godliness and righteousness. And the spear and the water bottle is the evidence of it. Because David had every opportunity to kill Saul or Abner or really anyone else for that matter, and they didn't do any of that. And so he's standing on the other side of the hill going, listen, let's talk. And the evidence of his character and his conduct is tied to the water bottle uh, and to the, the spear trusting God's platform in our lives, the reality is that the same is true for us. That we, we have to trust the platform that God has given to us, but we also have to be willing uh, to, 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 to foster that and to use it for God's purposes and His glory. And so when you go to school or when you go to work or in your neighborhood or some club that you're a part of or whatever it might be, the platform that you and I have is created and fostered through conduct and character. Now, this doesn't mean, right, this doesn't mean that you and I can't speak out until we have a platform. That, that, that's a lie. That's something that gets, says a lot. Uh, you, you ever heard this phrase? You have to earn the right to speak into someone's life. You know how many times you find that in the Bible? Zero times. You know how many times people show up and just start sharing the gospel? A lot. So it's not that I've got to earn some right to speak into someone's life. That's humanism. That's not, that's not gospel. That's humanism. All right? But here's what happens. The platform, when it gets fostered, when it gets developed with conduct and character, then it has a gravity and a weight and a force to it. It's not empty words. It's credible. And so part of what David is demonstrating for us is, hey, the platform 
The platform in our life is tied to uh, the, the, the conduct and the character and our speech. And loved ones, if we're just going to be honest, I think this is why a lot of us don't say very many things. I think this is why a lot of us are timid. I think this is why a lot of us shy away when it comes down to this stuff, because we live compromised lives. And we don't want to be outed in that. We don't want that exposed. We don't want that light shown back into our lives. So we just choose silence instead of fostering and developing the platform that God has for us. God, help us that we would trust the platform that God has given to us and that we would be build, building the credibility of it. So part of faith enabling us to trust in God is we trust where God has us. Notice, secondly, in 26, that we trust God's judgment. This is where David moves. Uh, Saul uh, begins to respond. Saul realizes Abner doesn't know who this is, but, but he's like, I'm pretty sure that's David. And so he says, is, is that you, David? Uh, and David responds, yeah, it's me. And then look at what David goes on to say in verse 18 and following. He says, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil's on my hands? And here's the argument for the judgment here. He says, now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of the servant. If it's the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they've driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. And the go and serve other gods is David saying, hey, I can't come to the, I, I can't even come and worship because I'm being hunted. Like you're preventing me from coming into worship. But the crux of his argument is that, that, that he's saying, listen, if I was wrong, I'll own that. Just tell me where I was wrong. But if you're pursuing me unjustly, then you and these men need to be held accountable. And so what David is doing, what he's appealing to here, is to God's judgment, not his own. He's going to trust God's judgment on these matters. He's not willing to fast forward the judgment, right? He's not putting spears in heads. He's content to let God be the judge. Loved one, are you content to let God be the judge in your life? Like David is willing to wait for the Lord, for the Lord uh, to be judge. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, what Paul says in Romans 12, quoting from Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Are we willing to let God do that? Right? We know in our head that God is going to bring judgment. But do we necessarily believe that in our hearts? And if God does bring judgment, if we really do believe it, am I willing to be patient for that? Am I willing to release those who have wronged me or slighted me? Am I willing to entrust all of that to the Lord and not have to take matters into my own hands? That's what David's doing here. God help us. That's what we would do in our lives as well. And as you think about that, think about this. Think about the fact that it's the cross of Jesus that is the epicenter of God's judgment. Right? That, that, that's the intersection. That's the epicenter of God's judgment. And so it speaks both to the fact of God's judgment and the totality of God's judgment. So, so the fact of the judgment is seen in, in the, the cross of Christ, but the totality of God's judgment is also seen in the cross. And, and Paul even says as much in Acts 17, helping us to realize, if I believe that God is going to judge, I can release it to him. And the evidence that I can release it to him that he's going to do it is actually the resurrection. This is what he says in Acts 17. He, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's like if you believe the resurrection, then you can believe that God is going to be faithful to accomplish his judgment. And so, loved ones, will you just leave, will you just choose to leave justice in God's hands? 
and choose to be obedient to God rather than having to avenge yourself. Right? Part of faith enabling us to trust in God is that we trust God's judgment. And then here's the third thing. Look at 21 to 25. Is that we trust God's king. We trust God's king. And so Saul in verse 21, it's like, hey, we've, we've heard this apology to her before, buddy. He, he says, I've sinned, return my son David for all no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and made a great mistake. Yes, that, that is correct. You have done that. Forgive us if we don't believe you, Saul. I think we've been down this road a few times before. Uh, so, so color us skeptical. But notice David's response. In verse 22, he offers the spear back for the king to come and take it. But look at 23 and 24. Really interesting things that David says here. He says this in verse 23, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Here's what's interesting about what David is doing. So Saul's saying, hey, I'm wrong. And David's like, yeah, you were. Um, and, and the Lord rewards righteousness and faithfulness. But notice what David appeals to. He appeals to God being the one who delivers him. So he says, Saul, I was, I, I, I had concern for your life, right? I saw that your life was precious. But then in verse 24, he doesn't say, would you also consider my life to be precious? He, I don't, whether he doesn't trust Saul to reciprocate, or that's not even the point, uh, he, he doesn't come back to Saul uh, seeing his life as precious. What does he say? He says, behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious, not in the sight of Saul, but in the sight of who? In the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. See, that, 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 that's what he's appealing to. That's what he's trusting in. That's what he's looking to. Here's the question. To whom do you entrust yourself to? David's trusting God to deliver him. Who are you trusting to deliver you? And as we think about this, and we think about trusting God's king, it's not just here in 26 that we see that. Really, we've seen that playing out over the last number of chapters. And maybe you caught it when we were reading earlier on. Maybe you didn't. But I want you to go back up to verse 2 and 3 here for a moment. Because there's a word that shows up over and over and over again. And it should be helpful to us in unpacking some of what's happening in this text. But the word that shows up actually four times between verses 2 and 3 is the word wilderness. And David's been in the wilderness these last number of chapters, hasn't he? And when wilderness, when you see wilderness, that theme, that concept in the Bible, it implies testing. Israel was tested in the wilderness. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. David is currently being tested in the wilderness, and I think it's actually foreshadowing uh, Jesus' future testing. But over these chapters, we've seen a variety of tests that David has had uh, to endure or to work through. You had Saul in the cave in chapter 24 where he cut off part of the robe and then stopped. You had the test of Nabal in chapter 25 uh, that Abigail had to intervene on. Then you had the test here in chapter 26, which David seems to be doing better here than he did in the previous two instances. But here's the tension for us as we look at this. Right? You look at David, and you're like, well, he kind of passed. Like, technically he passed, Man, he really needed a lot of help. If we were grading David, and we were looking at some of these things, we, we'd certainly say, well, he's certainly not acing this. And he probably got like a C-minus on the robe thing. 
It was a flat-out F until Abigail intervened in chapter 25. Here, it's like, well, he's doing a little bit better here than he has before. But here's the problem, right? He's tested, but he still struggles. He's not perfect. He's not flawless. I say this because Jesus will be tested, but Jesus will be flawless. He won't sin. He won't fail. Jesus will experience the full weight of temptation without any sin ever. And sometimes we do this kind of funny thing with Jesus where um, we think of him like he's not fully human. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh yeah, I know he's fully man, but, you know, he's God. And so it's almost as if we reduce at some level that he didn't experience the temptation or the trial or the difficulty or the conflict or the struggle in the same way that we do. No, no, loved ones, that's not true. He was fully human, which means he fully experienced the totality of temptation and trial and and, and testing and struggle. He just did it without sin. And sometimes we'll go, well, you know, it's kind of different for him. No, it's not. It's not different for him. In fact, I'd actually argue it's harder for him than it is for us, and here's why. Because as you continue to plod along in perfection, the ability to persevere and to preserve that intensifies over time. It doesn't get easier. It actually gets harder. And so if we're going to say that it's different, we don't reduce it. We actually amplify it. But Jesus is intimately aware of what it is to be betrayed, what it is to be mocked, what it is to have lost, to endure heartache and hardship and insults. There's no difference there. What's different is his response to the test, that he never fails, that he never sins, that he never wavers, none of that. Now consider for just a moment. Let's just think about some of the characters in the Bible. Kind of help us frame some of this. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Isaac failed. Jacob failed. Joseph failed. Moses failed. Joshua failed. The judges failed. Samuel failed. Saul failed. David failed. Solomon failed. Every king is going to fail. The prophets fail. Isaiah fails. Jeremiah fails. Daniel fails. Do we have any hope in the New Testament? Not much because Peter fails. Paul fails. James fails. They all fail except one, Jesus, who never fails. No compromise, no wavering, no succumbing to sin whatsoever. And so when Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, that, 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 that's not just flowery speech. That is the truth. Jesus knows our struggle. He does not know our failure because he is without sin. And as we think about that, man, loved ones, that should serve to enhance worship, and we should be marveling at that truth that Jesus is doing something flawlessly that no one else can do. He can face every temptation of this world, yet without sin. And as you think about that, you marvel at that, you worship him for that. If that isn't enough, 
it, it actually gets better. You're like, how in the world does that get better? It gets better because just like David, who fails, and we fail, Jesus, in his perfection in going to the cross for you and I, not only atones for our sin, but gives us his righteousness. So your F minus is expunged and cleansed by the flawless holiness and righteousness of Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. That he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. It's absolutely incredible. And so I don't, I don't necessarily want to rush out of this. And so we're, we're going to sit in this here for a moment. Um, and we're going to do that by coming to the Lord's table. So if you didn't grab elements, would encourage you to do that now. And as you're grabbing elements, just maybe one thing that is, is helpful at faith, uh, you don't have to be a member to participate. We would ask uh, that you are a believer. Uh, that, that, that's a, a restriction the Word puts uh, on us, and we'd ask you to abstain if you're not a follower of Jesus. But as we come to the Lord's table, here's, here's what I'll do. I, I do want us to just be able to sit in this for a moment. But as we think about this holy and righteous one who never succumbs to sin, who, who, who faces every temptation and trial with total righteousness and holiness, I, I think it does two things for us in terms of how we think about this. First of all, the holiness of God uh, it confronts our sin. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? In the throne room, he sees, the, he doesn't even see God. He sees the train of God's robe, and he's undone. He's like, I'm ruined! See, because holiness confronts our sinfulness. And so part of what we have right now is the holiness of God is confronting our sinfulness. And so in that, loved ones, that you just take some time to repent. But the, the righteousness of God, not only does it confront our sinfulness, but it also points us to the gracious gift that Jesus gives us. That is, Paul talks about in Philippians 3, that we have a righteousness, not of our own, not that comes through the law, but that comes through Christ. And so in that, we celebrate. So we're just going to sit in this. I'm just going to let you sit in this for a moment, both letting the holiness and the righteousness of God confront our sin as well as being a means of celebration that the righteousness of Christ is given to us. Let's just sit in that. Let's go to the Lord and let him speak to us. Uh, and then I'll pick it up here in a moment and we'll partake together. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Loved ones, as we partake together, we partake of the flawless person of Jesus with the holiness of God and the fullness of that. 
weigh and press down upon you as we partake together. Let's take of the bread. Paul continues by saying this. He says, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we partake of the blood, we partake not only of the blood that atones for our sin, but the blood that is the means of Christ's righteousness being granted and given to us. Let's partake together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do thank you for your perfect and flawless righteousness and holiness. God, we thank you how even in that, uh, confronting our sin, and yet also a means of incredible celebration because we understand that your righteousness has been granted, imputed, given, granted uh, to us. Would you let both of those just weigh heavily upon us now, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Faith enables us to trust in God. Here's the contrast that we see in chapters 27 and the beginning of chapter 28, that fear in us is rooted in a distrust of God. Fear in us is rooted in a distrust of God. Let me just cut it straight. We fear, we fear because we don't trust God. If you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you're living in that space, it is rooted in a distrust of God. Now David, David like many of us, has moments where he's living in this incredible abiding faith and trust, and then it's followed up with this foolishness or distrust or rebellion. And notice this sizable shift that happens between chapters 26 and 27. So beginning at 27 says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. It's like, what are you talking about? God just rescued you again from that guy. He's like, no, I'm going I'm to die. So there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Like, dude, you tried that. That, that ended very poorly. What, what are you thinking? Well, here's what he's thinking. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and his 600 men who were with him. He goes over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. He takes all his men and his wives. Look at verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now, I, I want to be honest in consideration of David that, that, that there's an incredible fatigue and weariness, no doubt, that he's experienced in these last number of years living on the run. Right? For years, he's been hunted. He's been pursued. He's been harassed by Saul. And that shouldn't be lost on us. Right? That, 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 that shouldn't be ignored by us. That, that, that stuff takes a toll on us. Um, and, and then he has this consideration of caring for his family and all of these men. And, and so no doubt there's this fatigue, this weariness that accompanies David. I think we can uh, fairly uh, say that. But it's in our weariness, which is true for David, it's true for us. It's in our weariness, our fatigue, that God and his word should be our source of hope and strength. Loved one, maybe you find yourself in a similar situation. Or you just feel, man, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just weary of pressing on. I'm fearful of continuing in what God has for me. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Uh, Maybe you find yourself in a similar place to David. That's where prayer, that's where the Word, that's where worship, 
where the corporate gathering uh, function to sustain and preserve us lest we be deluded and dismayed uh, in our life. Because look what happens to David. Look at verse 1. Right, when we think about fear in us, it's rooted in a distrust of God. Uh, the first thing that we see is this, is that fear hears self above God's word. That's what we see in verse 1. That fear hears self above God's word. Then David said in his heart, he just starts talking to himself, and he starts listening to himself. And the problem is he's listening to himself above and beyond the counsel of what God has given to him. And so he convinces himself that Saul is going to kill him, which, which is crazy because God keeps telling him, you're going to be the king, and that keeps getting, getting reinforced by, by a variety of people around him, including Saul at the end of chapter 26, who says this to David, you'll do many things and we'll succeed in them. And David turns around, he's like, he's going to kill me. And Abigail told him, you're going to be king. Nope, he's going to kill me. Jonathan told him, you're going to be the king. Nope, he's going to kill me. Now listen, the origin of fear, the origin of fear is a disconnect from God and his word. Did you hear that? The origin of fear, the birthplace of fear, the starting place of fear is when you and I get disconnected from God and his word. How did David go from this, this place of, of, of not killing Saul to I'm going to flee to the Philistines? He quit listening to and quit trusting in the Lord. That's how. Because the origin of fear is when you and I start to get disconnected or isolated from the Lord. And the state of our heart is shaped by the primary voice that speaks into our heart. The prevailing voice within our heart will determine the perspectives of our heart. And one of the striking features that shows up in chapter 27 is there's no reference anywhere to, to David reading the word. There's no reference to him praying. There's no reference to him seeking godly counsel. There's none of that. And what got David to this place was he was listening to himself instead of listening to God's word. Remember that old 80s song, Listen to Your Heart? Man, I miss 80s music, right? Big, big hair, weird clothes, pegged jeans. Actually, I don't really miss most of that. But that, that old 80s song, listen to your heart. Listen to your heart, right? You know what I'm talking about? Don't listen to your heart. Your heart lies to you. That's what the Bible says, that you can't trust it. It's deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? Right? So that old 80s song, it's actually blasphemous. It actually cuts right against the grain of what God is telling us. Jeremiah tells us it's deceitful and wicked. You can't understand it. Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. To listen to your heart is to embrace godless counsel. That is what David is doing here. And so again, let's just, let's just be blunt. Let's just be straight. If you are living in fear, if you are living in fear, listen to me, church. Somewhere along the line, you quit listening to the Lord and you started listening to yourself. And the way to remedy that is to start listening again to God and start telling yourself to be quiet. Now here, let me, let me, let me demonstrate. I'll, I'll give you an example in the Bible of this. Turn with me real quick. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Just so you don't think I'm making this up. And there's plenty of other places in the Bible you see the same thing. So here, this is written by a guy named Asaph. And for the first 15 verses, all he's telling you is, man, life is really good for the wicked. Things go well for them. They're profitable. It's working out. Kind of wish I was one of them. He doesn't go that far, but he comes close. He's like, man, they're just like, everything's going right for them. And then you get to verse 16. 
And he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Like, how, how do I understand why things go so well for the wicked, but it's going so poorly for the righteous? How, how, how do I make sense of this? What do I do with this? Now look at verse 17. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, when you hear from God, it changes your perspective on how you look at life. Because the rest of this psalm, he's like, oh yeah, it all makes sense. Now here's what God's going to do. See, when, when, when he put himself under the ministry of the word, he began to think with clarity. Loved ones, when you and I will put ourselves under the ministry of the word, we're going to think with clarity. Fear will hear self above God. Faith will hear God above self. And this fear that, it, I mean, that is just, we've seen fear in spades in this last year, have we not? We've seen it everywhere. And we're just gripped by fear. Let me just bottom line this. If you spend more time listening to podcasts, reading blogs on social media, reading or watching the news, right, I could go on. If you spend more time doing that stuff than you do uh, with, with, with your head and your heart in God's word, you're going to be afraid. You're going to be afraid. Because you're, you're, you're listening to the voice of the world. You're not listening to the voice of your Savior. And so maybe for some of you, you need to pull back from that. Maybe for some of you, you need to cut some of that off. Maybe for some of you, right, I can't spend four hours every day reading blogs and on social media and spending four minutes in the scriptures. Maybe, maybe I want to start reversing that trend and seeing what happens. But if you're living in fear, I promise you, somewhere along the way, you quit listening to the Lord and you started listening to your heart or to the people around you. God help us that we wouldn't hear ourselves. What we'd hear is God's word. Secondly, make note of this, that fear crosses the boundary of loyalty. Fear crosses the boundary of loyalty. Verse 2 says, David arose and went over. And that wasn't just that he went over to the Philistines, although that's true, but it's more than that. There's, there, there's a boundary of loyalty that's being violated or crossed. Now, listen, it's one thing to act in prudence. For, for, for David to want to find some kind of refuge from Saul, that's totally fine. That, that's completely reasonable. Joining the Philistines is an entirely different matter. That's a boundary of loyalty that gets crossed. David allowed pragmatism to justify a sinful partnership. God help us, we would never come to that place. That we don't start rationalizing and justifying crossing a boundary because there's some kind of difficulty or hardship in my life. There can be prudence, but prudence should never lead us to disobedience. And so when we violate the clear commands of God for the sake of ease or self-preservation, we're in the wrong and it's rooted in us failing to trust the Lord. Right? Fear crosses the boundary of loyalty. One other note, again, just note that there's the absence of God's word, God's counsel, David seeking the Lord, or anything of that nature in this. And then here's the final thing. Look at verses 5, um, and then we'll actually get into the very beginning of chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. That fear practices covering sin up. So in verse 5, David says to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, I mean, that whole statement should be wildly troubling. This enemy king, hey, if, if, if you like me, let me let a place be given to me in, the, in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So verse 6, Achish gives him Ziklag. I'll jump down to verse 7. The number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. This wasn't some two or three week hiatus. This was an extended period of time. And then what happens is in verse 8, 
David's going up and he's fighting against some of these other Gentile nations, the Gershites, the Gerizites, the Amalekites. Um, and, and what he would do is he would strike, in verse 9, he'd strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But look at what he'd do when he'd go back in verse 10 to Achish. Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And what David is telling him, he, he lists these different places. Those are all Jewish communities. Those are all the people of Israel. So he's going out and, and he's killing these Gentiles, but he's telling Achish, no, I'm killing all the Jews. And so part of what's confusing about this is in one sense, He's doing what Saul had not done. He's doing what they hadn't done uh, with Joshua and fully uh, ridding the people from the land. But the problem is he's lying through his teeth about it. So how do we think about it? Well, verse 11 is helpful. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. The problem is David... He's just covering all this up. This is not about God's glory. This is about David's self-preservation. That's what's going on here. And it gets to the point, verse 12, Achish ends up trusting David. He thinks David's made himself an utter stench to his people. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Well, that's not going to actually happen. But before it gets to that point, look at, look at what happens in, in 28.1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Wait, what? You realize what's, what, what's about to happen? David, in all his stupidity, is now basically about to line up against his own people. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to are go out with me in the army. <laughs> Uh-oh. Like that, that's a problem. And so D David begins to respond, and then starting in verse 3, it actually cuts into this entirely different narrative that we'll look at next week, which is full of its own interesting things uh, with Saul and this, this medium. But here's what's going on with David. David is practicing covering his sin up. He's practicing how he's going to cover sin later in his life. Loved ones, what you see here at the end of 1 Samuel 27 is the same template that David's going to use in 2 Samuel 11 when he sins against Uriah and Bathsheba and how he goes about covering it up. He's practicing sin here that he's going to replicate and use later on. And I say that to say this, don't ever think, don't ever think, don't ever think that your subtle, simple, lesser sins don't have serious consequence and import to them. They are paving the way for a greater and more grievous rebellion down the road. The practice of covering sin today becomes the lifestyle of covering sin tomorrow. That's where David is at. God help us, we would hear that warning and be honest and transparent and candid about the sin in our lives. Fear practices covering sin up. Faith doesn't have to cover sin up. You know why? Because faith is trusting in the Lord. Faith is trusting in Christ to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile. So, so I don't have to cover up all the ways that I'm adequate. I can just be honest about it. Because your opinion of me doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. Fear's got to cover it up. Faith has no problem being honest. And so this account, major, major contrast. Faith and trust or fear and sin. On both sides driven by our willingness to hear, to trust and follow and obey what God has for us, or to reject that and to deny that.
And so God help us, God help us that we would listen to him, that we would listen to his word, that we would have faith which enables us to live in a confident trust, not in a distrust of God, separated from him and his word. God help us that we would be people who live in, by, and through faith. Let's pray. Pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.